Welcome to the Maranatha Baptist Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this class from our Equip Ministry will be a blessing to you and will grow your love for Jesus Christ. We would encourage you to use it only as a supplement to your regular intake of God's Word in your local church. If you need help connecting with a local church, please reach out to us on our website, mbcgrimes.org. So we've been going through the book of Colossians. I've been in the back with the kids, so if I say some things that are maybe a little repetitive or things like, oh, I already know that, then this is an opportunity for you guys to help me. So what are... So I have a couple questions that we're going to be, I'll be asking, and we'll just, on the background and then throughout, and so uh, this is just an opportunity for us as a church to study the Word together, and it's a great opportunity and a privilege that we have. So just a, in quick review of the things that we've been learning, um, some of the background of Colossians, some of it is in your notes that you have. And so false teachers have promised ritual ways and ex- uh, to experience God's presence and blessing through the specific means of mysticism and legalism. And Paul's correction in this letter is that those who have trusted in Jesus already have the fullness of God with them. They have Christ indwelling them. And then through God's presence, we've been provided... Um, Sorry, I'm misreading that. God's presence, experience the fullness of God's presence through what has already been provided for believers in Christ. And so, these early believers were struggling with experience. They were struggling with legalism. They wanted to have this kind of experience that they could get. Having a, They were looking for something aside from Christ for a, their security for their peace. And so they were looking for experiences. If I feel this certain way, then I must be closer to God. And then their struggle with legalism was, if I do these certain things, then I have a right standing with God. But for the believers who are in Christ, as all believers are in Christ, these, we have all that we need right now through his word and through his spirit. And so we don't have to seek after experiences. We don't have to seek to do right things in order to gain a right standing before God. We simply seek to do what he wants us to do, and we do that by looking into his word. And so our theme verse is Colossians 2, 9 and 10, which says, For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. So, in Christ dwells the fullness of God. And for believers who are in Christ, Ephesians, Galatians, and Colossians were all written around the same time. So, a lot of in Christ shows up in Ephesians. So, those who are in Christ, believers, we have the fullness of God dwelling in us. And so, there is no need to strive for an experience. There is no need to desire to do these things in order to gain a right standing with God. Because of this, we have, because of Christ, we have a supreme and sufficient Savior. So that is our theme for this class, is life and our supreme and sufficient Savior. The first half of Colossians is focusing on how the preeminence and the sufficiency of Christ changes the way th- believers think. That is the first half of the book of Colossians. The second half is how the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ affects us in our walk as believers. So this is where we find ourselves today, is in Colossians 1, 24 and 29. Skip ahead a little bit. And today we're going to see that Jesus' supremacy motivates us as stewards to be ministers of the gospel. Jesus' supremacy motivates us as stewards to be ministers of the gospel. So up until this point, Paul has shaped his argument on the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ. Christ must be 
our first and our only love. He must be the preeminent Lord of our life. And when this is affecting our thinking, then this will change the way we live. And Paul here is giving an example of how he, because of the preeminence, because of Christ being preeminent in his life, he is motivated to minister to the, the gospel, to the church, to the Gentiles. He's motivated by the gospel to proclaim the gospel. And so we see that Jesus' supremacy motivates us as believers, as stewards, to be ministers of the gospel. And so, I want to pose the question, how does our conduct reflect what we believe about Jesus? How does our conduct reflect what we believe about Jesus. Do we have any thoughts? Larry. We have no need to fear. Because if we truly believe that God is supreme and is, is ruler over all, we know that he's in control of all things. And so we can rejoice in that, but also we can have confidence when the things, the uncertain things of life come up. When you're asked to teach a class a couple hours before. <laughs> you can trust the Lord, and we can strive together to have peace with each other. But we can strive to have peace in our hearts, because it starts with us. Any more thoughts? How does our conduct reflect what we believe about Jesus? Del. We will respond differently than we naturally would. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a couple of things that come to mind. When something happens that um, you wouldn't expect and you first have this natural reaction, it doesn't work in truth to helping to resolve the problem, but Our conduct really does show what we believe. If I believe that a bag of chips is good for me, I'll eat it. I don't usually eat chips, so you can show what I believe, or I show what I believe by what I don't do. And I also show what I believe by what I do. And so, just a short little illustration of just explaining how what I believe affects the way I act. Uh, as stewards, you're usually given something. And Paul uses the word later in this text for stewards. And so I was about eight years old, and my dad, I don't think he knew I was going to bring up this story, but my dad, uh, we were at church, and my dad gave me a $20 bill to put in the offering. And so... He gave me this $20 bill, and I just remember sitting there, and that was the most money I've probably ever held. It was just a crisp $20 bill. And so the offering plate was coming. He wasn't looking, and I put it under my leg and hit it because... What? <laughs> <laughs> well, as, as it goes, I, being that I was like, this is a lot of money, I started looking at the dollar bill, later on, and he's like, you didn't put that in the offering. I was like, no. He's like, why didn't you do that? I was like, well, I forgot. And that was a lie. So he ended up taking it back. But if I would have known that he was teaching me to be a good steward of my money, teaching me how to tithe, if I would have truly trusted him or believed him, then it would have affected the way I acted. So I would have put maybe put the $20 bill, maybe. But just the what we do shows what we believe. Our conduct is a much more accurate assessment of how 
we, of what we believe than feelings. When you come to church, you might ask, well, how are you feeling this week? Well, not feeling too great. I had something come up. I had this going on. Maybe a good question to ask is, how was your conduct this week? How did you display Christ? If we start asking that, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing to ask how you're feeling, but if we start asking questions, if we genuinely want to know something, we can ask it by a firm indicator. How is your conduct this week? How did you reflect Christ to the world around you? So what we do is a result of what we believe. In light of this, Paul here in Colossians wants to demonstrate that the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ motivates believers to act. If Christ truly believe, if Christ is truly believed to be supreme and sufficient, then this is how we minister to others. I'll just quickly read through Colossians 1:24 through 29. It says, "Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ." For the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship of God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of his glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end, I labor also, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. So the first thing that we're going to see today is that Christ's supremacy, his sufficiency, motivates us to minister by rejoicing when we are persecuted for Christ. We must minister by rejoicing when persecuted for Christ. This is verse 24. Paul is saying, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you. Paul is currently in prison in Rome. He is writing all these epistles. And despite his less than ideal situation, he has joy amid suffering. He rejoices. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for you. These sufferings were for the benefit of the Colossian believers. But not only the Colossian believers, because he was in prison, he was able to write to all these different churches. And he was able to edify them. And so Paul is able to delight in his circumstances because he knows that God is using it for the benefit of the churches around him. And he also says, and I fill up my flesh in what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. When Paul states that something is lacking, then that must mean that he has a predetermined quota in his mind that there is something not quite fitting the bill. And so Paul is saying, I'm filling up in my flesh, I think that's what it says, in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. This might be confusing because you might initially think, was Christ's affliction at the cross not sufficient? No, that's not what Paul's saying. Paul is saying that he is filling up in himself the afflictions that are due to believers who are in Christ. Jesus promised his disciples that in this world you would have trouble. I think that's in Matthew 24, there's other passages, but Paul is saying that he's filling up his life with, the thing, with these afflictions. He's intentionally doing this, and also somewhat passively if he was arrested, but he knew at some point, as we were studying Acts, that he would need to go to Rome. Did he know he was going to be in prison? I don't know. But that's what God had for him. And so he is choosing, despite his circumstances, to delight in them, to rejoice, knowing that God is supreme over his circumstances, but he's sufficient to meet his needs in those circumstances. 
so that his sufferings that he experienced were for the benefit of the church. And through his suffering, he brought God glory in the church. And the church was ultimately benefited through his suffering. So then, this just begs the question for us. What are we willing to endure for the sake of the benefit of others? For the sake of the benefit of your family, for the sake of the benefit of our church? It might not even be physical suffering. It's likely you probably won't get imprisoned for uh, helping somebody in church. I hope not. But maybe it's a little bit of an inconvenience to serve somebody in your church. Maybe somebody's like, hey, I've been kind of wrestling with something. And would you mind coming over and could we talk about it? And you're like, me? I, I don't want to do this. It might inconvenience you. But we look at Paul's example of his life and what he was willing to endure. And he was willing to rejoice in suffering. How much more can we rejoice in maybe some little inconveniences to benefit the body of Christ, to encourage one another, to show them Christ. We have opportunities every day to love one another and to share the love of Christ. Do we have any questions so far? Any comments? Right, move on to point number two. With Christ as supreme and sufficient, that motivates us to be ministers. And so we, Paul's example shows us that we must minister by ministering the hope of glory, which is Christ in you. Now, Paul goes off on one of his long tangent sentences, like he does. I would never gotten away with that in high school run on sentences, but Paul does, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Who knew? But anyway, so verses 25 through 27, Paul is saying, of this church, of the body of Christ, of this church, I became a minister. He says, according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you, to fulfill the word of God. And so, we have, in this passage, if you want a fun Side study, Ephesians chapter 3 is almost a direct parallel of most of this, but specifically this passage, talking about the stewardship of God's grace given to Paul for the benefit of the church. And he also says, notice with me in verse 25, he says, uh, end of 24 and 25, he says, which is the church of which I became minister, uh, the minister. And verse 23, which I believe you guys studied two weeks ago, or... Did you guys go over uh, 20 or 19 through 23 a couple weeks ago? Yeah? Okay. So, in there, Paul is saying that he, if you just look at the clauses, he says, the hope of the gospel which you heard, and then skip down to the end of verse 23, of which I became a minister. So, Paul was not only a minister of the gospel, but he was also a minister of the church. And so, He's just saying, this is my identification. I am a minister. I am a steward of this ministry because God has given me this ministry to fulfill the word of God for the edification and the benefit of the church. Paul's ministry to the Colossians consisted of presenting the word to them. And he probably never met the Colossian believers face-to-face, but you can just see his heart bubbling out towards them throughout this text. Is he's, his prayer for them in 9 through uh, 14, I believe it is. Or, yeah, Paul has a prayer earlier in here. But you can just see his heart bubbling out to them, the love of Christ compelling him to pray for them to show the love of Christ towards them. And he did this through the proclamation of the word. So, verse 26 
says, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to the saints. So he was steward, stewarded the mystery of the, ultimately the church. Uh, Ephesians 3.6, if you can turn over there for a second, says, Paul is talking about the mystery, and he says, I'm going to start in verse 2, Uh, Indeed, you have heard of the stewardship of the grace of God, which was given to me for you. How by the revelation he made known to me the mystery. Skip down to verse 5. Which in other ages was not known to the sons of men and has been revealed by his spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. And this is the content of the mystery. This is what the mystery is. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. Then he says, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God, which was given to me by the effect of working of his power. And it's almost a direct parallel to what we see today in Colossians is that Paul is saying that of this mystery, he was a steward. He was stewarded this mystery in fulfillment of the word of God, showing that the Gentiles were fellow partakers with the Jews of the promises that they had in Christ. If this wouldn't have been the case, then we wouldn't be here today. We, have, we can have joy, we can have um, peace. There's a number of things we can have because of this truth, because we are fellow partakers of the promises that are in Christ. For those who are in Christ Jesus, we have all we need because Jesus is sufficient for our daily needs. So both Jews and Gentiles are partakers of the blessings of being in Christ. And this we call as the institution of the church. This is God's institution where both Jews and Gentiles get to partake of the blessings that we have. So we get to rejoice as a church knowing that we wouldn't be here together if it weren't for Christ. Verse 27. To them God will, talking about to the saints, God may know what are the riches of his glory of the mystery to the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. To the saints, God intended to make known, to reveal, what are the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles. The Colossian church would have likely included mostly Gentiles. They wouldn't have been, there's probably a small minority of Jews. But when Paul is saying Gentiles, he doesn't mention Jews because it's probably that the Colossians are mostly consisted of Gentiles. So the riches of the glory that is in, that are the riches of the glory is Christ indwelling the believer. That is a believer's hope. The hope of glory is Christ dwelling inside of us. When we put our faith and trust in Christ, when we put our confidence in him alone for our salvation, Christ seals us with his spirit. And Ephesians 1 also reminds us that Christ indwells us, that we are, that Christ indwells us, but it's almost reciprocated in that Paul says that we are then in Christ too. So that when we stand before the Father, God no longer sees us with all our sin, with all our unrighteous and filthy deeds, but he sees Jesus because we are in Christ. So we are legally declared righteous before God. And that doesn't mean, obviously, that we don't sin. We sin every day. But there is grace to meet us when we sin because we sin every day. We get angry with our not my spouse, I don't have a spouse, but you might get angry with your spouse. You might get angry with your child. Maybe you are at work and you maybe slipped a couple naughty words out of your mouth when something didn't go your way. There's just a number of things that we can do every day that is in rebellion against God and what he has ordered. So this is where we're at, is that we have a great need. We need Christ. And for those who have put their confidence in Christ for salvation, 
we have the ability to have hope. We do not grieve. I think it's in 1 Thessalonians where it says, we do not grieve as those without hope. That when we have an eternal hope that cannot be taken away from us in this life, that when we have put our confidence in Christ for our salvation, the hope that we have compels us to share with others. And that is why we minister, or we must minister by ministering the hope of glory. We minister Christ being in us and everything that comes with that because we have many, many, many blessings that come with having Christ in us. And that is our hope in this life. What are maybe some things that we, even as believers, can tend to put our hope in when we take our eyes off of Christ? I'm going to open it up for everybody. Obeying rules. rules. So that would be consistent with what the Colossians were struggling with, with legalism. If I do these things... My hope is in what I'm doing rather than what Christ has already done. Daniel. Sorry, what was that? Worldly prosperity. So we can often put our hope in what we can attain through wealth. Our hope can be in material possessions, how much I can gain, how much is in my... uh, why am I forgetting this? Your retirement fund. Yeah, what's well, in your retirement fund. Maybe our hope can be in that and what we can store up for the future, knowing that we might have security in that, that I can be able to retire for how many years I want. But things like that can go away. What else? Mm-hmm. Relationships, maybe? Or... Yeah, oftentimes we can put our confidence in people to take care of us. That can be in a lot of different facets. If you are getting older in years and you are like, who's going to take care of me? Who's going to take care of me as my kids are halfway across the country? We can worry about that. We can also worry about like if a relationship has gone south. If you don't have that special someone in your life that, I don't know what life is adding up to. Everybody else around me is happy. We can put our hope in people. We can put our hope in relationships. But for us who are in Christ Jesus, we have a far greater hope. We have a hope that surpasses this life, an eternal hope that is in a person. It is, and it is in a relationship, and that relationship is in Christ Jesus. We, who have a relationship with Christ Jesus, have hope. And that hope motivates us to be able to minister to others, to share the hope that we have to the people who do not have hope. That is the gospel. That, these are the truths that help us and compel us to be able to share with unbelievers to be able to evangelize to people. The biggest part of evangelism, in uh, one of the biggest parts of evangelism is obviously sharing with others. But it begins by preaching the gospel to yourself and understanding it so well that you understand its implications for your very own life. And that joy and that comfort you get, that motivates you to then share with other people. And this beautifully blends into the next point, which is, number three, we must minister by proclaiming Christ to mature other believers. And I guess I could have just said proclaim Christ, because when Paul's explaining this, he's saying not only are we proclaiming Christ to believers, but we're also just proclaiming Christ so that we may present every man mature 
in Christ. And so you can maybe just scratch out the mature other believers. It's true, but it doesn't fully comprehend the extent of what Paul's saying. Some of your translations may use this word, him we preach, as him we proclaim. I think the New American Standard uses proclaim. So if you're worried that you're a woman and you can't preach, <laughs> this, this includes you, that we can proclaim Christ together. Paul is saying, he's not just saying, I preach him. He's saying we together. We, as a church, have the responsibility and the obligation to proclaim Christ together. So the we is the second person plural. So it includes all of us together, united for one purpose, which is to proclaim him. In Christ, the salvation of both Jews and the Gentiles is accomplished. Paul is saying that this is the message we proclaim, is Christ. Because of all the things that we have in Christ... If we were to preach something else that is not Christ, what is it? It's nothing. We proclaim Christ because in Christ we have spiritual, we have a hope, we have an eternal hope. In Christ we have many spiritual blessings. I have a question I want to ask, but I'll ask that later. So Paul preaches, he kind of goes into two different ways that he preaches. So he says, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom. So the first way that Paul preaches by admonishing, he's warning them. And the second way that he is preaching is through instructing or more or less teaching. And so with the message as being Christ, the two ways, the two facets that proclaiming him shows up in is warning. And so to when as believers when we are proclaiming Christ to an unbeliever what are we warning them of? What do we warn unbelievers of? Judgment. Judgment. It's fully right as a holy God cannot stand sin because sin is rebellion against him. It is fully right and holy of him to punish all sin. And so, to the unbelieving world, we proclaim judgment is coming. This is what Jesus preached. And so we don't need to shy away when saying the judgment is coming because Jesus preached that message too. To believers, I'm going to flip this now. To believers, how do we warn them? This might be a little harder of a question. Jim. I think scripture says that we're to be busy when he comes. Busy when he comes, yep. So busy when he comes. Any other things come to mind? Scott. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so maybe a negative way of taking this passage is that we're warning that if you might be immature at his coming, that you might not be where you ought to be. Let's elaborate on that a little bit. Maybe what are some ways that an immature believer might act? Going back to the conduct question. I can give, I'll give an example. Um, well, not specifically an example, but let's say, let's see if, I don't think anybody is named Bruce at our church, so I'm just going to use the name Bruce. We good with that? All right, great. So, Brother Bruce comes up to you, and you've been talking, and you're good friends with him, you have a good relationship with him, and so you've been noticing a pattern of sin in Brother Bruce's life, and you've been saying and it comes up in conversation. He's like, man, I've just been, 
something, this thing has been coming up over and over again. And you're like, that's, that's sin. That's sin. And he's like, I don't want to call it out. I don't want to say that's sin, but that's sin. And then he's like, well, what do you think? And you're oh, man. That is an opportunity to then warn him, Brother Bruce, saying, Brother Bruce, I love you, and I know that you've, you have the Spirit. I know that you are in the Word. I think you might not be seeing this sin in your life. Like if you, you asked me about it, and I just want to say, like, I think that with what Jesus says, the way you're living is not consistent. And then that is how we warn one another. That's how we warn fellow believers is you have a good relationship with them. You say, hey, I, I expect you to do the same thing for me. But I'm not seeing this certain way that you're living. It's not consistent with the character of Christ that you proclaim. And so in that, we're proclaiming Christ in that saying, this is this is the standard of what Christ says. This is who Christ is. But then we get to say, hey, let's walk towards Christ together. Let's strive to be more like him together. And then following that up with, hey, I expect you to do the same thing for me when I fall astray. That is a way that we warn one another. That is how, a practical way how we preach Christ in warning. The second way is teaching. It doesn't have to be just someone standing in front of you on a Wednesday night. It can be just instructing one another, getting together for a one-on-one Bible study. If you like coffee, if you hate coffee, maybe drink tea or uh, maybe grab cookies together. In Germany, they have cake and coffee, which is wonderful. They have it every day. And so it's just a great time of fellowship to get together. And for the believers out there, they would intentionally use that as a time to just say, hey, this is what Jesus has been doing in my life. Like, what's Jesus been doing in your life? And so that disciple, that's an opportunity to disciple one another, is you're instructing one another by saying, hey, this is what Christ is doing in my life. What is Christ doing in your life? And that's an opportunity that we get to proclaim Christ together. But what is the goal that Paul says in this proclamation and in this instruction and in warning? What is the goal? The goal of this Verse 28 is to present that we may present every man perfect in Christ. The word perfect there doesn't mean the translators when this word can mean perfect. But the translators had the idea when writing this down that this is capturing both the legal standing that before God, we are, God sees Christ in our st- God in our, sorry, when we are in Christ, God sees Jesus, and he doesn't see our imperfections, so in that sense, we are seen as perfect. That does not mean that we are perfect, nor does that mean that we shouldn't just do anything about it. The, this word encap, encapsulates the idea of maturity. Some of your Bible translations might say, Uh, to mature in Christ or complete in Christ. It's the idea that you have all that you need in Christ. So that idea of maturity or immaturity, that we preach Christ for the aim, for the end goal of the maturity of believers. And this was Paul's aim for writing this epistle to the Corinthians, Corinthians, Colossians, is that they would be mature in Christ. And so, we have the obligation, with the hope that is in us, and the gospel that we have received and put our confidence in, that we are in Christ, we must minister by proclaiming Christ, ultimately to mature other believers, but to the unbelieving world, so that they might also have the hope that we have. The fourth and final thing that we'll see in verse 29 is we must minister by laboring in the power of Christ. We must minister by laboring in the power of Christ. Before we get to this point, do we have questions, comments, thoughts? 
All right, we'll just keep moving on then. Number four is we must minister by laboring in the power of Christ. Paul says, verse 29, to this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. And so he's saying that he, Paul had the end goal to be, or sorry, he's saying that he too had the same end goal to be presented mature in Christ. If Paul had this end goal to be presented mature in Christ, we usually tend to put Paul up on a pedestal, right? Man, Paul is that, he's really godly. But he's, he's saying that he too has this aim, has this goal to be presented mature in Christ. So sometimes we tend to put up the New Testament believers or the Old Testament saints on this pedestal and think, man, they were so godly. But they were just people like us. Paul is saying that he has this same end goal of being presented mature in Christ. He did not pursue this goal, however, in his own strength. He pursued this goal by the power of God working through Christ that was at work in him. This power of God through Christ mightily worked in Paul to present him mature in Christ. So where, where does this power come from? It, I can't think of it. It's a theme that comes apart or comes throughout all of Paul's letters is the idea of this power. And this idea of power is present in the gospel. So it is the power of the gospel working inside the believer to produce maturity unto Christ. And the ultimate goal is to be Christ-like, that we may show the world what Christ is like. And so Paul is saying that this same work, this same power, this same work is at work in him to produce maturity into Christ. Paul did a lot. He wrote a lot of letters. He ministered to a lot of churches. He saw a lot of people come to Christ. But he doesn't take credit for that. Paul is saying, and he says it in other passages, and he might, he might be implying it in this, but he's just saying, to this end I labor. I labor to maturity in Christ, striving according to his working. It's his working in me that is mightily working. It is not I that's laboring towards, or he is laboring, but he's enabled by the power of God in the gospel to be able to minister to the world around him. Someone defined grace as grace is the ability given by God to do what God desires of me. I'll say that again. Grace is the, the ability given by God to do what God desires of me. And that usually we think of grace can be unmerited favor. That that is true. But grace also has this idea that it, this, you see it throughout all of Paul's letters, that grace moves us. God's grace enables us to do what is pleasing to God, because it is God that is at work in me. If you turn over to Second Corinthians 3. Second Corinthians 3. Verse 18, and then we'll read a little bit into chapter 4. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image of glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So you see that he's talking about the Word in the fuller context, that Paul, as you look into the Word, the Holy Spirit is the one transforming you from degree of glory to another degree of glory so that you may be more like Christ, that you may display his glory to the world around you. Therefore, since we have this ministry, he's bringing everybody in now. He's saying, therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. 
We have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness or handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But if, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds of, this God of the God of this age is blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel and of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. And I'll just pause there and explain this for a second. So he's saying that we all have this ministry, those who are in Christ, we all have this ministry of proclaiming God's glory. We do this through his word and through his spirit enabling us as God is transforming us by his spirit through his word to be more like Jesus then we get to share Jesus with the world around us. But he's saying also that there's a little bit of responsibility on our end to renounce the shameful and hidden things of this world, sin. Sin is what hinders a believer from being able to do what God wants him to do. Because if you're sinning, you're not serving the Lord, you are serving yourself. And that's rebellion against God. But uh, And then if we are living in this sin and we're still trying to proclaim the glory of God, it's just not going to work. Because the unbelieving world, they're, the, uh, their minds are being darkened by Satan. They're being told that, or they're just the truth of the gospel is being veiled to them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. So Paul, this is verse 5, Paul is saying that we do not preach ourselves. We do not preach my own thinking on this. This is not my own thinking that I'm presenting to you, to the unbelieving world or to believers. We're presenting Christ, who's truth. In Christ, you're presenting the glory of God. So there's no more than Christ that's presented, but there's no less than Christ that is presented also. And ourselves are bondservants for Christ, verse 6, for it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It is purely God who allows the heart of man to be exposed to the light and the glory of God and to be transformed by it. So we, as believers, cannot take credit for something that God is doing. It is purely God that is doing the work. So what are some things that motivate us as believers to share the gospel that aren't necessarily maybe the things that we saw stated in the Bible? What are things that motiv- could motivate us to share the gospel that are not accurate motivations? I think I can give just a couple examples. Um, one of them that comes to mind is just saying it is for personal gain. That if I share Christ with you, and I'm not sure how this specifically can play out, but we can share Christ, and it's a good thing that we're doing, but if Christ is not the primary goal of it, maturity into Christ, we can share Christ and it just be self-serving. I gain something out of this. Maybe it is that idea of I gain the experience of sharing Christ. I, this is for me. I'm sharing Christ because then I can check the box. I'm sharing Christ because I know this is what Jesus wants me to do. There's a lot of things that we can motivate ourselves to do, but it's not the motivation that Paul has. It's not the motivation that we see in the gospel. The gospel is the sole and primary motivator for us to share the gospel. Christ in us, our hope, is the hope that we have. 
to share the gospel. And so we go back to our main point, which is just Jesus is supreme. Jesus' supremacy motivates us as stewards. idea of as stewards of the gospel, Jesus' supremacy motivates us to be ministers of the gospel. So at the end of your sheets, I, w- I didn't know how things were going to time out, but we're out of time. But some of these, the italicized uh, sent- or questions are the ones that we were going to talk through as a group. But because of time, I just encourage you to read through these. There might be a couple typos, but I'd encourage you to read through these and ask yourself these questions. Uh, specifically, if you turn to page four, the top one is, who will you share this hope, referring to the Christ indwelling in you, who will you share this hope with this week? Maybe a name comes to mind family member, friend, who will you share the hope of Christ in you with this week? And then, I forgot to mention it earlier, but Paul says that when proclaiming Christ and warning people and teaching them, it's done with wisdom. So it's not done willy-nilly. So let the Lord, when you are, let the Lord be the one to tell you, hey, I think you should... It might just be a simple prodding, like, hmm, I think I should share the gospel with that person right now. Or, and there might be a hesitation, and that's okay. Sharing the gospel is done with wisdom, but who will you share the hope of the gospel with the hope of Christ in you with, uh, with this week? Uh, I'll close in prayer, and then we'll break off into prayer groups. And then y'all can go home and get some sleep. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the time that we had to be in your word. And you encouraged me. I hope that you encouraged others and challenged others and myself through this. And God, you are good and your word accomplishes just what you want. And so we pray that you would be honored and glorified and that you would uh, continue to let the hope of Christ in us change the way that we live. That you would help us to live differently. Let our conduct be different because of the gospel truths that are, have affected us. So, Lord, we just ask that you would be honored, and we ask that your name would be magnified in our lives, that the world might see your glory and be transformed by it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit our website, mbcgrimes.org. May the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and to God be the glory.